Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. Hey listeners, welcome to this episode of Yeah, Uh-huh with Lisa and Phil. This week, we're doing the second part of Jeff Demari. He has had a fascinating life. I think his demarcation point would have to be when he was in his 20s and he met a lovely Aussie lady and she was leaving, spent a significant amount of time with her and um, she was leaving for England and he was leaving to go do a master's program in Cleveland and he said, you know what, she's worth it and he followed her to England. Yeah, a remarkable life. And he's made interesting and amazing choices ever since. Right. So he's a brave new man in the world, and he takes interesting chances. Yeah, very interesting life. Mm-hmm. So the, this, the episode's a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. So we thought... We would uh, splice in a review of the new Aretha Franklin movie. Respect. Yes. A timely review. It's still in mm-hmm. theaters. If people like the yeah. review, they might go see mm-hmm. the movie. And that's, yeah. that would be a good way to mm-hmm. uh, segue into Jeff's part two. So so here's that review. Right. Let's all go is. to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. We're talking about Respect with Aretha Franklin, the movie that's out in theaters right now. It is a biopic. Um, If you look on Rotten Tomatoes, as we do, you will find that the critics did not care for the film, but the audience did. The soundtrack is really good, although they don't really play the whole songs. Um, The story of her life left me I know that she ended her life in joy and that she lived it in service to God I did not realize how much um activity how active she was with Martin Luther King and with social justice uh during my lifetime but to be fair I was born in 1966 and she was already a mother um at the very uh, at the very age of 12. She had children at 12 and 14. And um, she was molested for a very long time, uh, from the age of 11 through at least 14, because this particular molester was the father of her two children, her first two children. See, I think you're, you're, you you're gave more concern for the children. Yes, and it, which it, is one of my problems. That it, than Aretha yeah. did in the entire movie. That's what I'm saying. That was a right. shortcoming of uh-huh. the film. Right. That was one yeah. thing. Okay, so, so some of the other things. And I, I mean, there's, there's so much in a person's life that you would, how can you cover everything? Right. I did like 
<clears throat> the way the story did show her relationship with her sisters, who were also her backup singers when she went on tour. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was okay. good. Um, showing how the music tied in with their mm-hmm. relationship. But I mean, the movie yeah. had several. Uh, the, the way they, they would use memes, the, the, mm. the memes that would uh, seem to resurface or be from films like uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, where the artist uh, becomes, and even uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and a lot of them, where the artist becomes like so um, self-centered and um, full of themselves that they tell everybody else to go, you know, f off. Well, uh, there was that inevitable moment and then there was yeah. a struggle with alcohol and, and, mm-hmm. and drugs and I'm sure all that stuff happened but that was what the second part of the in film in the movie they showed the alcohol they did not really show the drugs Yeah. and the alcohol showed up after her first marriage broke up yeah. and she was with Ken Cunningham and the pressure was on um, but part of the pressure was even though she had finally started writing her own songs and recording her own music, respect and so on. Um, and, and recording music written by her, by her and with her sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, and I just want to say this, I feel like she still felt like she was so responsible for everything. Right. And, but she was so damaged, yeah. you know? And I mean, I have to wonder was this guy, did this guy only molest her? I mean, one of the sisters was older, but one was younger. Um, and her father was very domineering. And right, even, he was very It didn't suggest that he, that he did anything untoward with her, but he was, uh, he would take advantage of her by... Of her instance, abilities, her talents. Her talents, he would parade her in front of his mm-hmm. uh, cocktail party, and then mm-hmm. she would have to go to bed afterwards, which, which I guess she kind of enjoyed. He would bring her, he would bring her out to perform. Yeah. And she was expected to be the quiet child who was um, seen but not heard right. until she performed. Then she would perform a song and, <clears throat> and, then, and she, then she would immediately be dismissed to go back to bed. And that was indicative that he felt entitled. Even mm-hmm. after she became an adult, he felt entitled to a piece of her. Like yeah. he, she like was, he, he owned her. Yeah, like mm-hmm. he had done so much for her, you know. And, and when she... That's decided, the same attitude her first husband had. Right. Well, Ted. but when she decided to leave her father's management and go with her husband, Ted, um, he, her father was like, that's it then. You know, you'll come crawling back to me someday. We're done. Yeah. And I, I just feel like when she was with Ted, it showed that she had little or no relationship with her family. Um, whom she had been so, so like in, in, in with, mm-hmm. it, it showed that she had almost no relationship with them during that marriage. Right. And I felt like Wayans, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, lay into him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's a good, he's a very good actor, comedy yeah. actor and everything, but mm-hmm. I felt like his character was way too, uh, amplified. I mean, he was always, he was always angry, always on the edge of, of, you know, thinking of well, hitting that's, somebody that's... or, and, and I know that's, mm-hmm. I know there are people like that, mm-hmm. but I felt like that it was very one dimensional and I didn't, I, I just didn't. Maybe he was. 
very of course possibly, now you know, there's there's often two sides to every story and maybe kind of like a nice turner type syndrome story well yes i mean yeah. he was jealous he was abusive right. whenever they were interviewing her he would step in and speak for her right. and speak over her remember Marin played jerry and wexler they, the mm-hmm. um who who definitely producer. was at odds with um ted right he he wanted to work with Aretha. He respected Aretha. If Aretha called it, that was what was done. But if Ted called it, he questioned it. Yeah. Now, one of the, mm-hmm. one of the things I liked about the movie is when mm-hmm. they showed the scenes at Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which yeah. is a legendary mm-hmm. studio where Aretha mm-hmm. recorded, um, I believe she recorded Respect there and mm-hmm. Think and a number of other great artists like, um, I think, uh, Otis Redding mm-hmm. performed there. And it was a... Uh, it was a deep south white owned studio mm-hmm. and of course ted's guard was up as soon as they went down there to do this recording because everybody was why it got to be white right but aretha <clears throat> worked with these musicians and she recognized their talents mm-hmm. and realized that that would be um, a good move for her because her first nine albums went absolutely nowhere because right. she had these like big band orchestras behind her and, she and that had, was when she was with Columbia and New York yeah and mm-hmm. and they weren't resonating with anybody because her, you know, her voice was so she, yeah. amazing and, and the music was back in 1943 and, and I think if she had redone those songs with the Aretha factor, as opposed to the management of her father and the old, old men mm-hmm. management, I think she she could have redone those albums and had them have been, you know, I mean, she's like the first person to do a gospel album that hit the charts yeah. and topped the charts. Right, and she did it against Wexler. She did it Aretha style. Yes, it was it was against Wexler. She also decided to film it. That film went platinum, mm-hmm. let alone the rest of it. But I definitely think that was the highlight. Mm-hmm. There's a great Netflix documentary. I think it's just mm-hmm. called Muscle Shoals. It tells you the yeah. whole story of that studio. But right, um, it's also made famous by the Leonard Skinner song um, mm-hmm. "Sweet Home Alabama." Oh, okay. There's a line about it in there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. And and I think, listeners, you can tell that I watch the movie and Phil watches the concert within the movie. Well, that's what I like about these biopics. Yeah. You right. go it, and if it's if, mm-hmm. if there's something off, if the, if it's you really don't think it's that engaging of a movie, mm-hmm. and frankly, you I don't think this was that engaging of a movie. Right? Yeah, I would probably it's, give it like a. Um, I don't know. Um, I would give it a, the first half. I would, I mean, it's a five. Okay. The emotional situation with a childhood. But once it gets to the point where she's like a teenager to adult, mm-hmm. um, and they do a very good way of, of, of moving forward from that first half. And I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end of the first half where, um, where they you know that that brings us to the pivotal point of showing the the problems that she had and the and the stresses that made her kind of how she was later in life and I think that's why they did that but they did it so poignantly and then to have the second half of the movie it felt rushed yeah 
Um, Lots of so memes. like, you know, yeah. five to, um, you, well, you know, maybe her life was memes. Those memes are in there for a reason. Well, it could yeah. be, but it's mm-hmm. not. I don't know. You can tell I'm, I'm a little like really memes. Well, okay. Cause they did. What this, do you mean by memes? They did the same thing in Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody. And in uh-huh. that one, everyone knows it's not true. They tried to make it seem like mm-hmm. Freddie became so full of himself that he disengaged from the band and wanted to have a solo career. Mm-hmm. And that's simply everyone tests that did not happen. Mm-hmm. So why why do they always why do they why always do they have to that work that in? type of dynamic in every? Here's the thing: I mean, Aretha was controlled, controlled, controlled by these men. She finally dumped her husband, okay, and she did hook up with the tour manager, but the tour manager gave her the space to have some control. Right, and once she had that control she was at a place where she was somewhat lost and she started drinking because when she had the control, she had the power and the power was a little too much. And that's the meme there that, you know, that, that power corrupts, if you will. And that's where she ended up drinking. Now it didn't show pills. I didn't see any pills. You're assuming there were drugs. I just saw alcohol bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of alcohol. Yeah. So maybe there were pills, but I don't know. Right. I mean, I'm sure there were prescriptions for her health or, or whatever. All right. Well, here's, okay, we're running short because our mm-hmm. guests are waiting for us for our okay. new episode, our new full uh-huh. episode. But I wanted to add that the musical scores, in it, there were three main performances. Mm-hmm. One of them was Respect. Mm-hmm. The other one was Think, of course. Mm-hmm. Respect was a big concert think, production think yeah think mm-hmm. was done very yep. well because it was directed at mm-hmm. um first saw it was been ted right and that mm-hmm. was done pretty well um it's kind of the end of ted actually and, right and it kind mm-hmm. of at the beginning of the song it was he was still engaged by the end of the song he was out of the picture and then also natural mm-hmm. woman yep which i love that song Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for performances, those are three really good performances. And Jennifer Hudson is a fantastic singer. And she. And oh, absolutely. She did. She did Aretha. Right. Proud. I would have liked to have seen a few more deep cuts. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not that interested in the, in the church music. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it because it was so integral to her. You know, she was so insistent well, on it. And, and so and much a part of her life. I'm I not really. I'm telling just, him that we need to listen to the gospel album. I just don't. That she did. And, and you'll see that she did it as music. She well, did start, it Aretha style. You know how I get hot when I sleep? When I hear church uh-huh. music, I get hotter and okay. shit starts, you know, smoke starts. And, and yet, you can't understand my inability to deal with instrumentals. Yeah. So, but okay, last thing I'll say mm-hmm. is that Jennifer Hudson was great. Mm-hmm. She was. And the little girl that played her in yes, the, uh, she, the first half, that little super. girl. She's got a future. Yeah. She just was amazing. So basically her performance mm-hmm. was fantastic, mm-hmm. but it's like, have you ever seen a painting where you see a, a fantastic portrait in the center of it and there's nothing but negative space around it type of Okay. Well, what would you rate it painted? on a one to five three, overall? Three to three and a half maybe. Yeah. Okay. I think with the, if you, if you just stay until she starts um, singing for the choir singing you know at church when her father makes her do the solo after the um the seminal event of her early childhood you will uh, you will see 
the best part of the movie and that part's a five. So I'm going to give it at least three and a half, maybe four, simply because I think that um, that part of the movie deserves to be seen by everyone. So that's been what we thought about the movie Respect. It probably took too long, and I know I repeated myself, but it bears repeating. The first half of the movie, so amazing. And Skylar Dakota Turner turned it out as a young Aretha. She was amazing. All right. right. So let's go ahead and Uh play part two with Jeff Demery. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head. Yeah, Yeah. Asia and Europe. What brought you there? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. Um, I was delivered like an impossible choice after the year, the summer after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So I, I said I didn't study music. I studied anthropology and psychology. Mm-hmm. And, and during the summer of 1994, I was accepted into a medical anthropology PhD program at Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland. So that's what I was supposed to do is to go on to become Dr. Demery and a professor of anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I took that summer kind of relatively off to be able to prepare for the PhD and went to mm-hmm. Connecticut where I taught lacrosse at a summer camp for kids in Connecticut. And while I was there, the very first day there, I met a blonde haired, blue eyed Australian surfer hippie chick. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like that. <laughs> and, I, it, and I had this immediate this issue of knowing that corn-fed boys from Ohio don't meet women like that often in their life at all. And um, yeah, I fell completely for her. And it took mm-hmm. all summer to wear her down, but eventually she fell for me. Mm-hmm. And she was Australian, but she was dual citizen. Her mom was British. And she was going back at the end of the summer to go to England to teach art. And again, I was supposed to go back to Cleveland and start this PhD. Well, the week that my school started, we spent in Manhattan, blowing our paycheck, Yoko Ono and John Lennon style, and Mm -hmm. um, had a very teary farewell at JFK Airport. And I drove back to Ohio knowing that whatever my future held, it was not a PhD at Case Western. Mm. Yeah. So I um, mm-hmm. it was just a, a one heck of a choice. You follow your heart or you follow your head. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And I, my, my logic, and even though all my family and friends were telling me I was being a rash, you can't, you can't possibly skip out on that, you know, academic program for somebody just met. Well, mm-hmm. I didn't want to mm-hmm. end up being a Dr. Demery at some school in the middle of Iowa, wondering mm-hmm. what if. Right. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life wondering what happened. What would have happened if I would have followed that girl I fell in love with? Yeah. Because I, I can live with a swing and miss. I can live with striking out. But mm-hmm. I couldn't live with that, that regret of wondering what if hanging over my head. Right. So off I went to Europe with uh, Ill- illegally, improperly. Um, mm-hmm. My plan was to work under the table and mm-hmm. to, to get a job there. I did odd jobs here for a few months saving up money. I sold my car. I sold everything except for my alto saxophone which I picked up for the first time forever because well, the drugs didn't work. There was nothing that eased the pain of being gone from her 
other than playing. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get I couldn't get drunk enough to make myself feel better. And I realized that that was folly. So I thought, well, that old saxophone that was hidden in the closet, maybe that'll make me feel better. And it did. Uh, It was like pouring off my soul. I played awful, obviously. It it didn't matter. It was therapeutic. So I went to Europe with a backpack full of clothes, a one-way ticket because I didn't afford any more and um, any further, and my saxophone. As I was going through Heathrow Airport, they stopped and asked my reason for coming into the UK. And I clumsily said to go visit a friend. They frisked me and found a love letter from this woman uh-huh. on, my, on my person, read it, and I was busted. <laughs> they so, took me to the bowels of Heathrow Airport and threw me in a, in a, great, a detention cell. You're wow. kidding. No, not at all. It was a detention cell that had a mirror, very clear. They wanted to make sure that they could see in, but you could not see out. When you got inside, it was you know, yeah. mirrored back to you. And in that cell were four other people. There were three guys from Jamaica who were happy as anything because they were getting deported on purpose to go back to a friend's wedding. They uh-huh. couldn't afford plane tickets, so they were on purpose getting deported. And one guy <laughs> from India, India, you know, uh-huh. subcontinent India, with the worst fitting suit I've ever seen in my life. Each hem and cuff was like three inches far too short. Uh-huh. and he was a nervous wreck trembling yeah. in a corner not saying anything and not making eye contact to anybody <laughs> and then this american guy like oh my god so uh, why, if the rom-com would have was... just ended when you get to the airport that would have been perfect mm-hmm. oh my god he was like <laughs> you, know, you asked how i ended up in europe that's how yeah. that's literally how i ended up in europe to start for a short while yeah. And, and mm-hmm. they interviewed me and said, you know, we got reasons to believe that you were entering UK to work illegally. And I put on the most hick fed, corn fed, ignorant. Well, gosh, darn, I'm sure. Now, what the heck are you talking about? I met these friends here and I'm just coming over to visit my friends. They invited me to come stay with them. What are you talking about? No idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And um, so Did they buy of- it? No. Corn fed Midwest? No, they didn't buy it, but they took mercy on me. So instead okay. of throwing me out immediately, and they, I think they legally had the right to charge a return ticket home on my credit card and just chuck me out. Yeah. Um, they gave me one month okay. and they said, look, we've got this woman's address. We've got your British friend's addresses. And if you don't check out our computer system in one month, we'll put you in jail for not leaving. And whoever you're staying with, we're going to throw them in jail too. Okay. So have a nice visit and then get the hell out. So that's what we did. We had... I don't, mm-hmm. it was an intense, <clears throat> awful time. It's, I don't know. Knowing when, it was going to end? Making incredibly passionate reunion love and crying mm-hmm. your eyes out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, pretty wild, full on time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the time of the sword of Damocles over your head, this time are ticking. Mm-hmm. Towards the very end of the trip, I'm out of money, I'm out of time. I didn't have much money anyway. Mm-hmm. And I proposed to her in Oxford, town center. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Yeah buildings we were right by right by oxford university and i got down one knee in the town center it was a cold nasty march day i remember mm-hmm. and she said no because uh-huh. I was the wrong reasons which i was like i'm mm-hmm. stuck what the heck you want me to do if we got married maybe the chance that i could stay yeah. but she right. said no and then i got up and i looked away from her and in the mm-hmm. process of looking away from her i saw a travel agent and in the window was a sign advertising tickets to Bangkok, one way, something money. And I had mm-hmm. that much money, mm-hmm. <laughs> just that much money. So I walked in and I asked a nice lady to the counter, excuse me, miss, can you, Bangkok, Thailand, Asia, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> can you please tell me the current temperature? What's today's temperature in Bangkok, Thailand? 
and uh, 40 degrees centigrade something. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm American. Can you put that in Fahrenheit? And she said 100 something. Like, it's, it's bought. That's mm-hmm. where I'm going. And I had no intention of coming back. Uh-huh. I just needed, I, I wasn't thinking. I was in shock. I just had to get out. You said no, you had to go. Yeah. Oh, so Did she go we, with you? No. We okay. said goodbye. She had to go back to, what, to, to Worcester to teach. Mm-hmm. I hitchhiked to London and spent a night in Heathrow Airport with Canadian guys who were coming back from Spain who mm-hmm. were having a hell of a time. They shared their whiskey with me. Canadian people Yay. are so polite and nice. They're Aren't awesome. They? They? Yeah, it's yeah. really and then I took a flight to one-way flight on Kuwaiti Airlines, no doubt. Wow. Oh, wow. Bangkok, Thailand. Mm-hmm. I landed in Bangkok, Thailand with less than $100 and no ticket home, no health mm-hmm. insurance, and not a single name in my address book from Asia. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. And, yeah. That's really crazy. <laughs> things things yeah. Philip and I probably would never, ever do. No. It's not recommended. Once makes no. a pretty interesting story. Twice... It, it would be just full party yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Well, so you were I was, young. I was in shock. I mean, I yeah. was, you know, I, I had this big romantic plan and it all got scuppered and got didn't mm-hmm. go the way it was supposed to go at all. And mm-hmm. I just didn't want to go home and with my tail between my legs because that would be, I just couldn't live with that. Yeah. You gave up, you gave up that degree for nothing, didn't you, bud? Well, I think you did it with the best intentions. Yes, exactly. So I'm, I'm sitting on this plane and we've, we've all been on airplanes and you bring social, you bring media or whatever, headphones, you look at mm-hmm. the in-flight movie. Well, this time I just, I put down the, I was in the window seat and I put down the shade and just stared at the seat back in front of me for 12 hours. I, mean, mm-hmm. I really was in shock and not well. And yeah. I don't remember anything at all about the flight, except as the plane started to decompress and come down from altitude, I heard the pilot come on the air and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to be, blah, 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 blah. and it's just a mumble, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the Charlie Brown peanuts teacher, right? Yeah. And then, but then <laughs> I heard, so watching cops, a mighty rude cop, I'm like, what the, what on earth? Oh my God, they're speaking Thai. That must be uh-huh. Thai. What? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm going to in Bangkok. And I opened that side, the side window and looked mm-hmm. out and we're at about maybe four or 5,000 feet and I'm looking down at rice paddies. I mean, it yeah. was a scene straight out of Apocalypse Now. I'm like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, what did I do? Where, where the heck am I? <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Like and, and, then, and then the adrenaline kicked in. Oh. So as oh. I was going through customs, I saw long-haired guys carrying a guitar case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were they turned out to be from Manchester, England. They had enough sense to have a guidebook, The Lonely Planet, yeah. and learned a few Thai phrases and new cheap places to stay. And um, mm-hmm. they adopted me. You followed that? Yeah. yeah they took did you end up playing with them? Huh? Did you end up playing with them? So musically? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 But I mean, at, at first we had stayed. Isn't I mean, it? I, I was crashed when they were there as tourists, eventually going to wherever. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do. I guess I had to find a job. Um, yeah. So the first 48 hours of putting up notices and trying to find work teaching, teaching English was just completely oh. ineffectual. It just mm-hmm. didn't work. And I was down to, I was down to enough money that I was missing meals. Mm. Mm. And it was past the point where if I wired home, if I if I sent my mom a telegram to ask her to send me money to bail me out, I still would have been really hungry. Uh-huh. And it was, it was it was scary. And in 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 this little guest house, I was staying in the an area called Kalsan Road in Bangkok, where which is the crossroads of everybody in the world. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh! You know, eight Australian kids, New Zealand kids, Japanese kids, European kids, American—I mean, everybody crossed through there because of its mm-hmm. location in the airport. Yeah. Right. 
I'm staying in a guest house there with um, people from everywhere. And they all knew my story because it's a wild story. You don't just get off the plane in Bangkok with no money and no way home. Like, you know, and I was, these two exceptionally nice young ladies from San Francisco said that they were going to go walk around a local temple called Wat Po, the Temple of the Reclining Buddha. And she mm-hmm. they suggested that that might help me clear my head because I wasn't in any fit state to, to get a job with having, you know, full on panic attack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I walked with them and they were right. And it was the first time I was ever in a Buddhist temple. And it was very, very different than our churches, Christian churches, Catholic churches, and the cathedrals of Europe. It was, oh, yeah. it was open air. It felt different. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking, I started to calm down mm-hmm. and I felt my heart. And then, and then my heart started to kind of defrost and mm-hmm. yeah. And I felt a big, huge cry coming. And I walked to a corner of this temple complex and found this little shrine alcove in the corner where there's nobody else. And I, I got down on my knees and bawled my eyes out. And, and I prayed for the first time ever in my life legitimately. And mm-hmm. I named God in every possible form I could, Yahweh, Jehovah, <laughs> Allah, Muhammad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, and then I, I, went through, I went through the Greek pantheon. And then just for extra measure, I, I named them in Italian too. I did the Romans, you know, so I did Zeus yeah. and Jupiter. I had mentioned Thor. I was an anthropology major, so this went on for a while as I worked my way through <laughs> American religions and stuff. Yeah. You know, I said, if you are out there, this is the one time for you to reveal yourself because if I ever needed help, it was now. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm kind of like, <laughs> I can imagine what a scene I was, this weird American mm-hmm. guy in this corner crying, doing this. this. I felt a hand on my shoulder and I turn around and it was a Thai Buddhist monk, a young guy about my age, clean shaven head with a saffron robe and smiling mm-hmm. ear to ear like a jack-o'-lantern, which is kind of mm-hmm. disconcerting when you're that upset and that emotional, you know, this guy just smiling at you like he's having the best day ever. Yeah. He was having none of my tears and being down, he's like, you know, no worry, my friend, no worry, my friend, good luck come to you, good luck come to you. At the same time, it's kind of picking me up and es- escorting me out to this area where I probably shouldn't have been, you know? Mm-hmm. And as he was doing that, he tied this bracelet on my wrist and said, Buddha said, good luck come to you, no worry, no worry, and he ushered me out. Probably not his first so rodeo, stuff. right? I mean, he's probably, uh, probably not his first rodeo. He's probably seen the likes of you before. <laughs> I wasn't in a state to discern a whole lot. He was friendly and kind towards me, and mm-hmm. I remember it distinctly that way. Yeah, and um, and I felt so much better having had that long cry. You yeah. know, and that, that kind of off. And and, and the, so it turned out my new friends from San Francisco were right. The walk did do me a load of good, and I'm sure mm-hmm. they could see that I've been crying when I got back to them. But I felt so much better, you know. Like, yeah. and it was we walked and we walked back to the guest house. So I'm not making any of this up at all. I actually lived this for better or mm-hmm. for worse. Whatever people think yeah. of this crazy podcast. So I get back to the guest house and mm-hmm. I'm sitting there, and almost straight away, this French couple come in. And the French guy, this French man says, are you Jeff, American Jeff? I'm like, yes. And I heard you were looking for work for English. My friend just opened up a new school. Take this card. Go here. He will interview this afternoon. You can do this afternoon interview. Yeah, sure. Go here. This address. Take this bus. And I, and I went and I got the job straight away. Yeah. And the job was a new school opening up on the outskirts of Bangkok. Um, they had Filipino English teachers, but they were desperate for a native English speaker. Right. And I fit the bill. The guy gave me a cash advance so I could survive and get an, uh, get an apartment, and I lived. Well, once more, kismet. Yeah. I come, I come yeah. back to the guest house in celebratory mood, all incredibly happy, all mm-hmm. right? And another set of travelers come through, and they had 
they had consumables. They, they had alcoholic beverages, we'll call it, that they couldn't take with them on their onward flight. So mm-hmm. they donated it to the guest house. So suddenly yeah. we got a party with all kinds of booze that we hadn't paid for. <laughs> so now we're, we got something to party. Again, I can't make this stuff up. You asked if I played with those guys from England. Uh-huh. So as we're sitting there and everyone's kind of toasting and celebrating the fact that crazy American Jeff is actually going to live. And they're all feeling better about my fate now, too. So I got wrapped up in the story. And we're drinking these guys free beer. Um, this, this band from Amsterdam who had planned to go on to Australia and do a tour in, in Australia, they mm-hmm. liked Bangkok so much, they took the rest of their tour funds and bought a bar. And uh-huh. they were having a grand opening that night, and they wanted musicians to come and play. So we went and we jammed. That was one of the first times I played in public. It was they awful. It was great stopped time. touring and bought a bar. I mean, what happened to those guys? I have no idea. Can you imagine? They can still be there, Aaron. I got no idea. Well, you've heard of Oasis, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that, uh, so you've been on so those three things happened within the course of what, like six hours of each other. After that, Monk told me, hey, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, and, and you're still teaching. So my question is, do you feel like that whole journey brought you to what you really do you love teaching? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I and, then, like, and all kinds of levels, too. Yeah. Because whole... I mean, you 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 went through music, archaeology, or uh, anthropology, psychology, and you you became a history teacher. So, you know, one of the big ways that that experience mm-hmm. in Thailand has affected my teaching practice because mm-hmm. I, I teach at a title one inner city school and quite often I'm the only white guy in the room mm-hmm. so a vast majority of my um of my students are people of color and unlike most white cisgender straight you know guys mm-hmm. yeah. I had the direct experience of being the victim of prejudice yeah. so it, the, the the school in Bangkok I ended up teaching at was in the Bangkok um Chinatown so there's mm-hmm. a Chinatown everywhere, even in Asian countries, right? There's, so mm-hmm. there's a Chinatown in Bangkok, and that's where I was staying. And the, the, uh, several times, these xenophobic old Chinese women refused to serve me in their restaurants. And it's straight up racism. Yeah. And as a mm-hmm. white guy, I'm like, it took me a while to even recognize it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, yeah. I'm, I'm being the subject of, of, of racism here. Oh, my gosh. Maybe not a bad exercise to have gone through. No, I mean, it, yeah. it, it gave me all this empathy. And, yeah. well, there was... After a few weeks of living there, something huge happened that affected the rest of my life that I could just never put back. And it, I, all these stories, my gosh. So I'm, I'm relatively settled. All right. I don't know much Thai yet or whatever. I'd only been there a few weeks, but I knew I was going to live. And I, I, mm-hmm. I mentioned before about if you, as long as my saxophone, I'll make friends and I'll survive. Well, I made, I made Thai friends who played music and they had a really cool bar. It was made 100% of bamboo. The mm-hmm. bar was 100% bamboo. How, oh, so neat. Strung up with Christmas lights. And there was a um, water buffalo like, smalls in the wall. Like a it tiki straight- situation? Huh? Like a tiki situation, a tiki bar? It was 100% straight out of the Vietnam era. It hadn't, it hadn't changed since American servicemen were in Bangkok, you know, in the mm-hmm. 1970s, I'm sure. But it was yeah. a music venue where they're playing this live music. It was a couple blocks from my, my condominium. So... To get there, and it's the same walk as I had to go to the English school, right? I had to go up along the canal, which was dirty and nasty and awful. And then along the canal, I went along the soy, the alleyway, and I walk along the alleyway to the main road. And then on the main road was my English school and this bar, et cetera. And I'd walked it already, you know, I'd been there a couple of weeks. I'd walked it several dozen times. 
You know, you walk it once or twice, several times a day, it's the same thing. And it's fairly nondescript. There's some of these restaurants I mentioned with xenophobic old Chinese women who won't serve mm-hmm. you along there. Right. Different types of, Bangkok was weird because there was like really expensive houses with Mercedes right next to literally lean to corrugated roof shanties. And then there was a few well, you warehouses. you your servants to live close. It was all, it was strange. It wasn't like segregated like us. It was just kind of very different. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So one night I'm coming back from playing music and it was late. It was about two mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning and I'm carrying my saxophone. There's nobody else awake. Yeah. And I'm walking along this alleyway. I walked along, you know, how many dozens of times. And I see this guy standing outside a door frame, leaning in the propped open door frame, mm-hmm. which is odd because we were the only two people awake in the whole, you know, the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he, we saw each other from a good, you know, 50 odd yards away or whatever. And he was dressed in leather, which was strange because it was 80 degrees still at night, you know, and he was smoking a cigarette and he definitely did not look friendly. And as I was walking past him, I got a glimpse and I didn't break stride and there, but, you know, as I kind of like made eye contact with him, looked at him, I was able to see past him and in through the door frame. I had a window about six inches, you know, that I was able to see into that door frame. And what I, what I saw would you know, change my life forever. It's not something you'd ever unsee. It was, it was very clearly and unmistakably row after row after row of sewing machines. And behind the sewing machines were prepubescent teen, you know, children. So I, I know kids' ages pretty well. These kids were grade school. They weren't, they weren't even mm-hmm. teenagers. Yeah, You're talking eight, nine, long. 10 years old. Yeah. And I, I didn't take more than you know, four or five steps past the guy when I went, I was like, oh my gosh, that's a sweatshop. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 this is the, this is human trafficking and, and right. like for real. Yeah. Well, on my yeah. neighbor, oh my gosh. And they, they didn't just start this now. That, that, oh, there's tons of these warehouses. It's set up, obviously. Oh my, oh my gosh. And then, yeah. you know, I didn't get much further than that. And I realized I can't say anything. Right. I can't see. Well, one, I don't speak Thai. I wouldn't mm-hmm. know how to, te- to tell the police what happened, even if I saw them. And I'm vulnerable. I was oh, there. The police, no. Yeah, I, I was working on I was working illegally under the table I was on mm-hmm. a, a tourist visa you know nice. and I, I wasn't supposed to be employed so mm-hmm. and and I'm almost 100% certain that was Thai mafia I would have been dead right and, it, so okay. in, and, and I'm sure they owned the local police oh yeah yeah so I don't think that you're I don't think there's a moral quandary there to carry into the future so yeah. what brought you back I did though, you know, and I still carry it now. I mean, yeah. I, I couldn't, yeah. the fact that I couldn't help those children haunts me to this day. Yeah. It re- I mean, this was, this is over 30 years ago now, guys. And it, I definitely, and it definitely motivates me to still help the kids that I possibly can. Do what you can. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you that's why I eventually you. became a social worker. Maybe I didn't go back to right. Thailand or whatever, but I've, I've, I've helped a lot of kids over the past few years. So right. it informed, it helped inform your, your mm-hmm. uh, passion for education. For sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, big part of it. So, are you still connected to social work along with teaching? You know, only in terms of that. I'm, I'm not teaching at you know like a posh college preparatory academy. Most of my mm. teaching is social work anyway. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like, I at least one third of my kids this school year will have experienced homelessness. Mm. Wow. Yeah, wow. And we have That's a high terrible. proportion of English language learners, so it's a it's very much a front line of you know the stories that you hear in the news. Right. So. So what brought you back from um, Thailand? Uh, well, um, eventually I got healed. I got, mm-hmm. I, I felt, I felt better um, mm-hmm. and rehabilitated. 
And so I guess I'm one of the few people you'll meet that went to Southeast Asia to find themselves and kind of did. Um, yeah. Moved back here, enrolled at the University of Cincinnati as a master program for anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, started teaching at lecturing at Cincinnati State. Mm-hmm. I found a job waiting tables at a Thai restaurant. So it was a really posh Thai restaurant. And, they'd be yeah. the and as I was settled there, the woman from Australia showed up here. Oh. And this time she proposed to me. Oh. So are you still together? Uh, well, we filled out all the paperwork for this time appropriately for a fiance visa. And this was back still in the 97. So we mm-hmm. had to send up reams of telephone bills as evidence and letters yeah. and stuff like that. Um, I moved to England and we got married in the summer of 1997. We were hand fasted by Druids at Stonehenge. Oh, wow. So, I mean, again, I'm not making any of this up. We were both (laughs) hippies and not church going type of folk. And she said, I found these cool Druid people that will hand fast us at Stonehenge. You want to? What do you say to that? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I mean, at Stonehenge? You know, it was was so absolutely neat. The the celebrants, the priest and priestess, Mm -hmm. so like gray wolf the gentleman played guitar and had long hair and looked like gandalf but he was really really funny he was just he gray was, wolf he was, the gentleman that's a oh, title. Yeah, ridiculously funny personality he played songs but his songs were like comic songs they weren't like serious deep songs i remember he was like a like a comedy musician but he was hilarious and a super kind guy and then the priestess bobcat was um a five foot tall welsh smoking beauty Oh my gosh! Like Catherine Zeta Jones, like Welsh. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, all I can think of was Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> like crazy. Yeah, again, Aaron. There's no way I would make this stuff up, even no, if I can. could. All right, yeah. Bobcat and Grey Wolf. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were. So you know, something that might interest you while we're talking about this crazy stuff. So while we were standing there getting ready, it was a big deal, okay? Because they. Mm-hmm. Because they don't let just hippies go inside the stones at, at Stonehenge. If you go there now as a tourist, there's a, a concrete path that goes around it, and they're literally ringed off. Right. And you have to look at them from you know a, a bit of a distance. And the reason that is is because on one summer solstice in the late 1980s, something happened called the um, Tomato Field War or the Tomato War. And mm-hmm. basically, the fields surrounding Stonehenge were planted with tomatoes, and the police wanted to keep the hippies from drinking beer and climbing on the stones and acting debaucherous. Mm-hmm. And so they had a battle in the cornfield, or sorry, in the in the tomato field, throwing tomatoes at each other, oh. <laughs> which is hilarious. So but hippies and police—it's happened for real. And it, yeah. they banned all this, the hippies and the druids from the stones. Then, well, this is now ten years later. And I'm with a nice family-friendly druids, you know, and, uh-huh. and they agree if you behave under certain conditions, we'll let you back in the stones. So it was it was special for them, a big deal that we got let back in. And mm-hmm. they one of the cool things about the druid ceremony is they celebrate the whole cycle of life all at once. Right. So they don't have a separate ceremony for baptisms or for funerals mm-hmm. or for weddings. It's all the same mm-hmm. ceremony. Oh. It's all part of life cycle, right? And that's what right, the whole right. druid yeah. thing is about, connection to the earth and so on. That's that, kind of, that kind of fun stuff. So you they had, confirmation and it was all cool by me. I didn't have any yeah. problem signing up to any of it. It was all peace, friendly, mm-hmm. and be kind yeah. to each other, which works for me well enough, you know. Mm-hmm. So other people, it turns out other people wanted to get ham fast in the same ceremony. So mm-hmm. you, that, that, we didn't mind, you know, Lynn and yeah. I didn't mind. We'll share. But, 
Bobcat said to the crowd before we would get guys before we got in, we have a special request. You know, we have a we have a couple other ceremonies going on other than just Linda and Jeffrey. But you know, Steve and Bob wanted to get want to get married too. Um, we should probably talk about this out. What do we feel about this? So in 1997, standing in the National Heritage parking lot, waiting to be let in at sunset to go into Stonehenge, these druids had a quick talk. We don't give a crap, let them get married. And that was it. And that's how the Druids decided gay marriage over. Mm-hmm. That's how long it took. Yeah. Yay, good job, Bob and Steve. Woo! Just, and that was uh, it. No hand rigging, no uh, congressional <laughs> hearings or anything of that nature. We got <laughs> hand fasted, they got hand fasted after us. I mean, that was literally as long as we took the debate mm-hmm. the whole thing. That was it. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. That is so cool. So, yeah, yeah, we got yeah. I, I, eventually I moved to England to be with her. And yeah. it, and it, once we settled down and we were able to share a house and cohabitate and we were no longer Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers living this crazy Hollywood script, it, mm-hmm. relationships sucked. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it, wasn't, oh. Uh, it wasn't stable enough for a dog. We never had a mortgage. So we lasted mm-hmm. four years and then we agreed to kind of part and go our separate ways. Wow. It's yeah. still an awesome story, though. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's yeah. a pretty awesome story. Yeah. So you want me to finish? Well, I, I, they left me stranded in England, which isn't so good. Mm-hmm. And I was penniless again, like I was in Bangkok. That's not huh. so good. But this time I'm almost 30. I'm not like yeah. a young kid anymore. It made me mad. I it don't was not such you. a good thing. Being left, I mean, you'd think you would have at least, having been married in four years there, you know, a, a plane ticket home. So how did that end? Well, I knew that it, it turns out this nice hippie chick that I thought I married was actually a member of British aristocracy and uh, old British blue money. So uh, one of the first things that happened before we got married is her parents showed up and made me sign a prenuptial agreement. Okay. Which, which I didn't care about because I wasn't marrying her for the money and didn't, didn't matter. Right, right. But it, um, it mattered to them and they looked, very much looked down their nose at me. It was, it, they, they, made it, they made it difficult. And yeah. I didn't certainly didn't accept any of their money or handouts because mm-hmm. you know, tension and stuff like that. Right. So, yeah, I left with um, my saxophone, a car, and that's about it. Not very smart. Mm-hmm. Well. But, so when you came back, um, you, you reside in Western Hills now, right? Yeah. So that was, I'm, 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 when we split up, it was just at the turn of the, of the millennium. Mm-hmm. And I was finishing up a social work qualification because I was working with kids and I wasn't qualified. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about what to do next. I spoke enough German that I could move to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I was only a year or so away from being able to get a British passport, which would have mm-hmm. helped. Then I could have lived anywhere in Europe, which I thought would right. be kind of cool. I thought about moving homes enough time it elapsed. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had this idea to start my own business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to make a very long story short, we spotted an opportunity in a private care sector to operate a therapeutic community for teenage boys who've been sexually abused. Okay. There was a clear need for British governments to have people look after these children. They legally mm-hmm. had to look after these children and they were putting these boys in prison. And oh my God. 12, 13 year old boys don't belong in prison. That definitely yeah. wasn't a good place for them. So we had our business idea was to create a home and a separate school and a therapy center where these boys could stay with us, where we can keep society safe. And we pitched it as being charged at just a few pounds per week less than sending them to prison. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I ended up being an expert high court witness in the field of child deviant sexual behavior. 
and our homes were recognized as an alternative to custody by the British court system. Wow. And yeah. the judge would say, you know, Mr. Demery, we accept this child into your care and under certain conditions. And as long as I met the child, then yeah, I'd take him back to my care. So it turns out that, you know, all you know, this idea that everybody has a superpower, everybody has something they're super good at. Yeah. So it turns out that my superpower is that you can put me in a room with an adolescent child and I can read them better than they can read mm-hmm. themselves, like, like straight yeah. away. Yeah. And I, I would, I would have these kids pegged, you know, and I'd, I'd mm-hmm. make them the condition they couldn't, they couldn't refuse. You either get in my car now and you come back with me and you play by my rules and mm-hmm. I, and I own you. I mean, if you so much as sneeze wrong, I'll send your ass back home. So where yeah. you, you can go to prison. Which when I'm in a room with an adolescent child, they find out my biggest flaw and pick on it and make fun of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's the opposite. I'm the opposite. So, but that's, yeah. a, you know, that's a gift. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a gift. Indeed. So that's what I did for, um, for quite a few years. Over the course so you of got six your years, British they, passport then, or? I, got a, I ended up with a British passport and mm-hmm. with the company, I went from one home to three homes. Okay. We won an a, award for British entrepreneurial you know, activity of the year in Gloucestershire, which was kind of a, I don't know, social workers, social worker hippie types don't get to do that stuff very often. You know, yeah. a black tie yeah. affair cool. where you're handed a business award. That was neat. Yeah. In England, I was the only American in the room. It was cool. Right. But um, my business partner lost his wife. He took a yeah, sabbatical, like, got drunk, became an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Then he tried to come back and then we had to part. So we butted heads. I tried to buy him out. He put a ridiculous price on our business. I said, if you thought it was worth that much, then why don't you buy me out and I'll go back to America and leave you alone. And he did. Oh. So, so I came back here in 2009 and retired for mm-hmm. four or five years. Did nothing. I got bored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, so now, what what is the Western Hills? They're Mustangs, right? Indeed. Yeah. So now you're a chief Mustang. <laughs> it's a little bit of a wild journey. Yeah. yeah. You know, I got, yeah. I did some business coaching and settled my daughter into school and, and mm-hmm. got married again and that kind of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it, my, my soul wasn't filled. I was mm-hmm. emotionally, morally bored. Indeed. Yeah. And I looked at that saxophone that I kind of put on later. I played in bands in England and had fun. But then when the business got busy, busy especially when I was trying to, to exit and sell out, the end part of the entrepreneurial process of getting out is, um, is, is one heck of a life experience. That's what I wrote my yeah. dissertation on. It's, yeah, you can fill several podcasts with that, several books worth on that. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I, I, well, I'm going to get some time back. I'm going to pick my saxophone back up. Mm-hmm. And how do I put this, friends? I start. I realized I could start to apply some of these things I've learned. And for, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, my story that I've told you today is true. And I've accumulated yeah. these things along the way, the psychology degree, and, and by studying anthropology about the, the religions, the Pacific Islanders, and everything else. I mm-hmm. studied you know, Buddhism with monks in, in, in Bangkok, directly from the source, mm-hmm. and all these other things. And then it was especially working with those kids, the kids that were just labeled by society as being thrown away, they're future pedophiles. No, they're mm-hmm. not. They're future college students. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in an environment and give you enough therapy and support where, where I'm going to get you to believe it, where you're going to go you on. You don't have to do this. This is not, yeah. It's not who you and are. It works. Yeah. I mean, it, it completely, yeah. there's, you know, statistically verifiable evidence and reports from the government mm-hmm. agencies in Britain to show that we took them from A, we took, they went up out ending up being college students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was sitting yes. there in my basement looking at the saxophone and realizing that I was selling myself short. Mm-hmm. It was just before my 40th birthday. I have this history of doing these wild reinventions just before 
a mm -hmm. decade birthday, I guess. I warned you I'm about to turn 50. Yeah. So I was just about to turn 40. And I thought, you know, life is getting short. If I can do anything on this planet, I've learned I'm going to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was 260 pounds, had mm -hmm. hair shorter than Phil. <laughs> and anybody who met me would thought that is so completely, totally improbable. There's no way six foot two geeky Jeff Demery is going to be a rock star ever. You're almost 40. Mm -hmm. And I started losing weight, got in shape. I started taking private lessons from one of those guys I told you were really good in town. Yeah. Who actually went to school for studying music. Yeah. I had money and I was minted. So I hired them to come to my house and coach me and joined, joined a funk band that became the best band in the city. Sweet. So can you, yeah. can, just for, can you go ahead and tell us what the name of your band is? Yeah. Yeah. We were called the almighty get down. The almighty get down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My name. But then it, it imploded, and as yeah. bands do. That ending. And I thought, well, what am I going to do next? If this works, if this stuff really works, I should be able to teach it to others. Mm -hmm. So that idea is that I originally found out starting in children's homes, and then I applied to myself as my own guinea pig, transformed myself into long-haired, standing-on-speaker stacks rock player. Mm -hmm. I now apply it to the entire eighth grade of a school. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I and over the course and I have these kids for an entire year and mm -hmm. I change and I watch them I watch their brains change and I am mm -hmm. directly 100% planting seeds growing future lawyers yeah. mainly lawyers I, I want I want them to hold political office so people science and, and you, you have picked one of the most difficult ages oh no it's the best age it's yeah, well, no, time. it is because they're transformative, but they're also at their potential cruelest. Yeah. I that was not, that, that, the seventh and eighth grade were not good years. Oh, yeah. When, it, when you walk into a classroom, if yeah. you're not ready, they're going to uh, eat you alive. They're going to eat you alive, right? What's, what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if you don't have, mm -hmm. if you don't have what, apparent, what you have, mm -hmm. they're going to. Uh, Ten, what's going on here? Oh, that's Aaron sharing the screen. Of the oh, ball cool. Game. Okay. Because uh, Jeff is also a Reds fan. Yes. But mm -hmm. um, um, Joey Votto's batting. Uh, yeah. Um, he's not doing it very fast. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we talked a little bit about that. I mean, I know Aaron and I have been from the other side of the uh, podium as mm -hmm. students, you know, in high school with our mm -hmm. history team, like Mr. Leonard, Mr. Calkins, and some of the people we had. You know, it's not just sitting there going through a book and, um, picking out dates and reciting uh, the date, uh, the Bill of Rights or something like that. There's so much more that goes into teaching. And when, when we were talking, getting ready for this, um, one of the things you said that you, that you ask as an essay question of your students, and it's topical to us because we're going to be interviewing someone who actually conducted a seance with Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. But you asked your students, uh, is he a hypocrite? So I want to ask you, I want to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you, was Thomas Jefferson a hypocrite? Oh, Jeff. One of, one of the, one of the key, I, I, I strive very much to teach my kids the truth and try to get them to, to think for their own self right. and try to, to come to derivations of, of what their interpretation of the truth is and what makes good evidence to read, you know, go towards the truth. And mm -hmm. the, the truth of the matter is that people are complicated. Things are very yeah. seldom black or white. So oh, the exactly. only honest answer we can give is he's a bit of a hypocrite, but not. Yeah, he's a yeah. bit of both. So yeah. the, the, the evolution of that essay question, we start off with Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. And the first question I asked him for the end of the first unit is, was, does Christopher Columbus deserve his own holiday or not? 
No. Was he a hero or a zero? And and the evidence towards Christopher Columbus is pretty damning. Yeah. I mean, there's not a whole lot of redeeming features, you know, involving, you know, direct historical sources that paint Christopher Columbus out to be a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. He really did be responsible for murdering 500,000 Arawak Native Americans. And mm-hmm. so, you know, given the evidence, almost every kid will write it, you know, saying, no, Christopher Columbus was a bad dude. Yeah. Well, by the time we get to Thomas Jefferson, there's evidence of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's it's more nuanced. Yeah, he right. definitely wrote the Declaration of Independence. He definitely wrote those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely owned slaves. Right. He definitely was in love with Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. He definitely didn't free her. Right. All right. So there was, but, you know, words that directly contradict themselves. He said, and I'll, I'd have to, you know, look it up, but they, he has some direct quotes that are just very, very racist. You know, uh-huh. not... Yeah. African-American people are lazy and insolent and they, they won't be able to ever fend for themselves. They right. can't care for themselves. This kind at of that idea. time, you're kind of alone with your thoughts. There's not much opposition to this type of uh, thinking. No, it, there's no opposition. <laughs> yeah. That so, is the prevailing yeah, thought really from not, everyone that you know yeah. and speak to. There's no The most learned people yeah. still somewhat believe that the majority right. there's no outward pressure to modify right. to, to really adjust your, your thoughts yeah on the and there's actually outward pressure to keep that thought because of the prevailing economy exactly economically speaking how many of your students would give up would be willing to give up a you know a hundred pieces of gold to help out people that they've been taught are not going to be able to handle it yeah it's a mess. And you know, that mess carries all the way through until we get to Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. which is the subject of the last essay question. And mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln, obviously, is still more complicated, you know, even still. And right. there's evidence that Abraham Lincoln was, the question I asked of Abraham Lincoln was, was he truly the great emancipator or was he just another politician telling people what they wanted to hear? Yeah. And, and again, you know, the, the reality is it's complicated. And that's, yeah. that's what I'm trying to get my students to understand. It's not it's not so simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from the particular demographic that you talk about, uh, probably the most fascinating responses mm-hmm. might come from those kids. Indeed. You know. And it's, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating age because they come into my classroom as much more children than adults. Right. And they leave the opposite. Because right. they, once you learn something, you can't go back. Right. And even though they may have had African-American teachers before, uh, quite often for my kids, I'm the first very proactively anti-racist teacher that they have. Right. So and I, I don't suffer that whole CRE debate. I don't, I'm not engaged in that. I just teach the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I just tell them the facts and you make up your own mind. And the, and the facts what's the are, CRE debate? Uh, critical race theory. Oh, sorry, oh, okay. CRT. Yeah, critical yeah. race theory. Again, this is a, a talking point from some in some political spheres, but it's not, as history teachers, we're not really involved in it and don't get into it. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not my thing. Right. I'm going to teach them the evidence, the facts, and then let people come with their own conclusion. Yeah, don't teach them that it's racist. Let them figure it out. Yeah. One and, way but or but you do. If, if if you look at our, if you look at it as a relationship, yeah, mm-hmm. the relationship between white people in this country and people of color, it's mm-hmm. it's an abusive, nasty, horrible relationship. Yeah. First off, people of color didn't have to be in the relationship, and then they yeah. were physically, emotionally. And sexually abused for however many hundred years, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll take more than just simply "oops, I'm sorry" to put it right. And we've never right. have said sorry, never come close. Instead, mm-hmm. we have Derek Chauvin kneeling on people's necks. Yeah. It's it, so you don't have to make yeah. it lopsided. And this is this is the way our our history happened. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I Your feel like the excuse that during- that's the way we were taught to do it is it's got to go away. So either they have to stop allowing that to be an excuse or they have to create a training. I, I think like maybe a national created training that's universal across the country and don't even make it mandatory. Let police in each region, state, city, wherever, choose whether or not to use the national program. And if they do use the national program, they get a tax break or some kind of benefit so that the cops are taught the right way or at least consistent. That's deep. <laughs> That's really okay. deep. That's cutting right to the chase there. Yeah. We're two hours in. And I'm, yeah, I'm exhausted by I think, the whole thing. I mean, it's been really fascinating, Jeff. I really, yeah. really enjoyed having you on. You've been a fantastic guest. Yes, actually. Yeah, we could we could have one with the fish stuff, one with the music, and one with the education. Right. And um, I think that you definitely should consider, as you approach 50, becoming an author and writing a memoir. Absolutely. Oh, thank, thank you. I, I can't do that while my mom's still alive. So the best stories. Well, you can start writing it and publish <laughs> I, I see, it. I see what you're saying there. I the think you can start writing it there. and publish it later. There's a lot of yeah, really geez. good stuff there. So. Yeah. No, I appreciate the encouragement very much. Thank you. And yeah, Wait, for better, you for could worse, do letters to myself or letters to Aaron or something like that and yeah, then no, publish cool. it after she's going. I definitely enjoy writing too. It's, um, I don't know. The, the, I'll leave you with this thought, I suppose. I very clearly remember as a teenager, finally going back to read for the first time because I wanted to, not because it was assigned. You know, I had a super cool English teacher who retired. And on his last day of school, he slipped me a piece of paper and said, Jeff, these are the books you want to read that I'm not allowed to give you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was full of Henry David Thoreau and and Herman Hess and Nietzsche Mm -hmm. and cool stuff, you know? So I remember coming across a quote by Thoreau, which said, I don't want to come to the end of my life having not truly lived. Yeah. And it, it kind of haunted me, you know, so I wanted to experience life. I want to just be true to myself and experience as much life as I can. And that's the, about the only common thread in all those stories is me trying to listen to my heart. And if my heart leads me to the top of a scaffolding, you know, playing saxophone mm-hmm. for 5,000 people, I will. Yeah. And right now it led me to just a super cool group of young teenage people who are going to grow up to inherit our world. Yeah, the uh, the plan is that they live longer than us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I certainly hope that they outlive me. It's it's this yeah. land is your land. This land is my land. This land belongs to you and me. This this land belongs to them. Yeah. So I hope they take good care of it and they have a full, happy, good life like we are. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right, okay. Jeff. Is there anything you want to plug? Yeah. Like with your yeah. voice right now. So Aaron, you asked for a plug, and this is like I don't know. This this is good. I got asked. I got asked last January, so it's coming up to a year, to mm-hmm. join the board of directors for an international organization called Seeds of Peace. And this was a group started in Israel mm-hmm. to encourage young people of different religions to work cooperatively to make their community better. Oh, that's great. So you're talking basically about, you know, Israeli kids, Palestinian kids, Christian kids, right? Mm-hmm. It, the, the charity's now grown internationally. And it's spread across the world. There's a branch in Seattle, New York, and ironically, there's one here in Cincinnati. Oh. And as the Cincinnati gr- branch grew, the board of directors is formed of um, rabbis, deacons of Christ Church, Christ Cathedral downtown, right? Um, that kind of stuff. But they didn't have anybody who represented children who weren't of an identifiable faith. And the highest growing rate of, of religious 
affiliation in America is non-affiliation, is being um, atheist. So they asked me as a moral atheist to join their board. So I serve on the board of Kids for Peace. And what we do is exactly what it sounds like. We take young people and we give them leadership training opportunities and we empower them to take their world and make it better, which is a big thing. That's uh, seedsofpeace.org slash donate. So if you're going to plug something, that'd be a good one because people could contact there. If they want to contact me, I'll sign them up and, and put young people of great of school age, you know, in contact with the right people to sign up for these programs and activities. It looks awesome for college applications that you're involved in this and yeah. remember the, you know, leadership organizations, leadership development opportunities. And it's all free because we're a charity and we do our own fundraising and we've got donors with deep pockets. Very so cool. I think it's a super cool opportunity for young people. It's something that I would have, I think you and I would have definitely liked, Aaron, when we were, you know, teenagers, we would find out about it. Awesome. Yeah. So it's seedsofpeace.org slash donate. So if you want to plug something, that would be a very worthy thing to plug. All right. We will do that. All right. I'm going to shut up. Good show, that? man. Yeah, that was a great show. Yeah. And well, uh, you ask a school teacher who talks for a living. So talking for two <laughs> hours, not a problem. Not a problem. Right. Lisa and Phil. Yep, yep. All right. Well, you have a good show tonight. Enjoy, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Yeah. Sounds good. It was super nice meeting you guys. And Aaron, thank you so much for putting me in touch. I really, very much appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It was a blast. Thanks for coming on. All right. All right. Be well. Thanks. Oh, Reds are up by one. Right. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds See great. Hey, listeners. It's Lisa. And Phil. From Yeah, Uh-Huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have socials. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Notice, Notice a, a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.